This sermon, Gathering God's Way, was preached on Sunday, October 22nd by Pastor Derek Overstreet at Sovereign Grace Church, Tucson. The scriptures, and for this last sermon, would you turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy 2. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 8 through 15. 1 Timothy 2. 8 through 15. Would you stand with me? Let's read God's word together. I am reading from the ESV, English Standard Version, the official version of our church. Verse 8, chapter 2. Paul writes to his dear friend and spiritual son, Timothy. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. may be seated. Let's pray and ask the Lord for help. Lord, through our singing that you have already brought us deeper into the glories of Calvary. Lord, our life is Christ. Our life is hidden with Christ. We are We are in an unbreakable union with our Lord and Savior. Take us deeper into that glory, even in very practical ways that we will see today as you, as you teach us how we are to gather when we gather as your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're unfamiliar with uh, 1 Timothy, it was written by Paul. Uh, Timothy was, like, like I said earlier, a spiritual son to Paul, and he wrote this letter to Timothy and, by implication, to the church uh, sometime 63, 64, 65 A.D. And his purpose in writing this letter was to instruct Timothy on different aspects of leading the church as a pastor. In fact, his purpose clause is in chapter 3, verse 14, if you want to look over there with me, where he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things, that is this letter, to you so that purpose, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Many things have changed over 2,000 years, but one thing that hasn't changed is like this church in Ephesus, every church throughout the ages is the household of the living God, a pillar and support. The gospel makes it so. And so we too, we too must listen to what Paul's instructions are here today. Now, we're not going to get into all the details of this instruction. I can tell you right now that I think oftentimes we tend to, we tend to misunderstand these passages, what they mean and what they don't mean. Um, and I think it's easy to lose sight of this. The context of these verses is the gathered church. It's what we're doing right now. Certainly there is application outside of the gathered church, but Paul specifically is bringing this instruction for the gathering of the church. 
what we are doing right now. So what are we doing right now? Well, uh, I tried to craft a statement about what we do when we gather using our mission statement, the preceding verses of our text, and then with the Trinity in mind. And, and here's what I came up with. Our gathering is meant to proclaim and demonstrate the power and testimony of Jesus Christ as the one mediator between God and man, that all people would come to a saving knowledge of the gospel truth and the power of the Holy Spirit and to the praise of God's glory. That's why what we are doing right now matters. Because what we are doing right now is not just what Christians do on Sunday. It's profound. God meets us and he engages with us in a way that is like no other way when, he, when his church gathers. So our gathering matters. In fact, if, if we could sum this entire text this morning up into one sentence, it would be this. When we gather as God's people... We gather God's way. Scripture doesn't tell us how to do everything when we gather. But it is clear on some things, including our God-ordained complementarian roles, which is what we are going to be looking at this morning. And so where Scripture is clear, we must be committed. Where Scripture is not clear, we must be careful. But here, Scripture is clear. When we gather as God's people, we gather God's way. And so I want us to look at God's way in two ways that surface from this text. The first one is humility matters when the church gathers and order matters when the church gathers. Humility and order matter when we gather as God's people. So let's look at this first point. Humility matters when the church gathers. God, we, we, we've looked at this over the past few weeks. God calls men to lead, and that includes in the church. So it's no surprise when, that Paul would begin with men in verse 8. Notice what he says. I desire, and don't take the word desire as, well, this is just Paul's opinion. No, he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, communicating to the church by implication of the gospel to us. This is God's desire as well. I desire that, that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Um, one would think that this would go without saying, but Paul essentially is saying there's no fight in the church. There's no fight in the church. Paul says anger and quarreling have no place in the household of God, especially when we gather to worship. I don't know if you remember your first fight. If you've ever had your first fight, I do. Second grade, standing in the lunch line. And I took a Brady Bunch lunch bucket to the mouth and one chip tooth later, the fight was over, and I was 0-1 for my career. <laughs> Men love to duke it out. <laughs> Be it with their fists or their words. I can easily say, don't tell me to back down. I can fight a war of words with the best of them for as long as I have to. <laughs> It's a bit of hyperbole, but it's true. Men get angry. At times, we get loud. Other times, we, we quietly huddle in the lobby to, to complain about music that's too loud or to complain about a member that's too different or to complain about a pastor that's too straightforward. Sometimes, our anger is silent. The anger and the quarreling isn't outward, it's inward. But of course, God knows the heart. So he sees our anger and our quarreling. Well, in verse 8, Paul says, stop. Take it outside. No, that's actually not what he's saying. <laughs> he says, stop. When you gather, 
as my people, instead of fighting, pray. Did you see that? Did you see that? I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Do this. Don't do this. When you gather as my people, as men, we're called to lead. And that includes making the church, in particular when we gather, that it is a gathering place of peace and love and unity that reflects the peace and love and unity of the gospel of Jesus Christ that has gathered, for, gathered us in the first place and is the reason that we gather. And yet too often we, we turn the church into a verbal WWF. Paul says, no, 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 no. And listen, this church had a lot of reason for quarreling and infighting. One of the issues at, this, at Timothy's church was, and that he was struggling with, was there was a lot of false teaching going on. You want to start getting quarreling and fighting, just start talking about doctrine and stuff, right? There was a, in this case, there was a lot that they were getting doctrine wrong, and there was a lot of false teachers. No doubt people were taking sides. Paul says, no. When we gather, you pray. You lift up holy hands. You don't you don't fight. I think there's a natural question for the men here before we go any further. Are you an angry person? Are you angry with someone in this room right now? Humility says, pray for that person. Repent before the Lord. Pray for that person. Stop fighting them. Pray for them. It's amazing how praying for someone transforms your, perfect, your, your, your perception of that someone, your perspective of that someone. If there's somebody in this room that you're angry with before the day is out, unless you really do need time, go to them. Humbly talk it out with them. Involve a friend or a pastor if you need to. Listen, to be sure that there are going to be disagreements. We are sinners, right? We are sinners. But as men, we're called to lead the church in peacemaking. We're called to be the gatekeepers of the unity of the church. Ladies, that doesn't mean you're out. That doesn't mean you just, well, the men have that. No, 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 no. But, but, but the men are primarily called and responsible to lead in this way. And this takes humility, doesn't it? Where there is humility, there will be peace. And, and humility means a lot of things. But but here's some things it does mean. Humility means that, that as men, we ought to see others as more important than ourselves, Philippians 2.3. Humility means that we look to others' interests, not just our own, Philippians 2.4. Humility means being able to overlook an offense. Stop being a snowflake. Just kidding. Sorry to be insensitive. But the Bible kind of says that. Proverbs 19.11. Humility means having an eagerness to guard the unity of the Spirit and the body of Christ according to Ephesians 4.3. And if you study that word eagerly guard, that word eagerly, it denotes a, a resolve and a commitment to pursue to whatever degree you have to pursue, to do whatever you have to do to guard the unity of of the spirit that that takes humility but god says man when we gather humility must be present stop your quarreling put away your anger and pray with one another pray for one another now, I, before we move on to the ladies man i want you to be encouraged because your team believes you model this well 
There is much grace. I shared with the guy with the team this morning. I said, hey, we're not, this really isn't corrective. This is affirming. This will position our folks to guard themselves and be able to root out false teachings about, this, about, about the things we're talking about today. And I think it will help them go to their Bibles in a clear way and defend what it is that we believe. But this is not corrective. The men in our church, you are humble men. Not that there are never disagreements, there are, but, but when there are, we, we do work them out. Not perfectly, imperfectly, but there is much grace. So be encouraged, men. Be encouraged. Now next, Paul addresses the women. Notice what he says in verse 9 and 10. He says, likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Ladies, you know this. You feel it every day. We live in a society that screams in your ear, you are what you look like. That's why there is a fortune being made on things like Botox and plastic surgery and fancy jewelry and designer clothes. The world says if you want to get noticed, if you want to have a sense of significance, If you want to be somebody, you've got to have it. You've got to look it. There's a look that you need to have. There's a way that you need to present yourself. And if that external pressure wasn't enough, you have the internal tendency to constantly be comparing yourself with other women. Man, I look at her. I wish I could pull that off. Man, I wish I I could afford that kind of wardrobe. I wish my body looked like her body. I wish my face looked like her face. The Bible says something vastly different. The Bible says it's not about the outside. It's about the inside. It's about your heart. It's about about your motive. And before you go applying verses 9 and 10 to yourself, mothers, before you go applying verses 9 and 10 and fathers to your daughters or to your sons, you start here. Paul is addressing Motive. That's the point of verses 9 through 10. The, the, what, what Paul is doing here, and there, there's a lot of cultural things that we could get into here, but, but I want you to get the gist of it. Paul is saying, ladies, if you dress to get noticed, if you go to church to be seen, no matter how long your skirt is, and no matter how loose your pants are, You are missing it. That's pride. It's pride. Because you're dressing to kill. You're dressing for attention. Listen, one of the things that we talked about Tuesday Tuesday in Tuesday's class is sin is not physical. These glasses aren't sinful. Sin is moral and ethical. So fashionable clothes and nice jewelry, that latest hairstyle, those things aren't sinful. They aren't sinful. What's sinful is a self-centered pride that's rooted in the heart and uses these things that are good in and of themselves, they come from God, uses them to, to, to... to idolize self. That, that's the issue here. Listen, I want to be, you know, the, the, let me ask you this question, ladies, just like I asked the men. What are you more aware of or concerned about on Sundays? 
your looks or serving others? Reflecting a particular image or reflecting your Savior? Listen, I want to be clear. God doesn't forbid your desire to look good at church. And that is the primary context here or anywhere else. But this morning we're talking about church. He, <laughs> ladies, let's just, not to be Captain Obvious, but let, you are far more beautiful than the men in this room. <laughs> he has made you beautiful. He, he doesn't forbid you to look good. Now, that's not the point here. He doesn't forbid you to wear nice clothing. What he wants you to see, what he wants you to know, is that looking good is not where you get your identity and value. That comes from, not from what you can do to yourself, but what Jesus has done for you in the gospel. That's where that comes from. That's where that comes from. So just shut the world off. Don't listen to their lies. And here in this context in 1 Timothy 2, Paul is putting before us that Sunday morning is a unique way to express this. It's a unique way to believe this. It's a unique way to embrace this. God desires you to come to church not to dazzle with your looks, but to demonstrate the glory of Jesus with your heart by humbly giving yourself to, notice verse 10, good works, serving and pointing others to Christ, using your gifts to bless others. This is a God-glorifying profession of godliness, especially when we gather as the church. Ladies, like the men, be encouraged. Uh, you excel at this. You do. You excel at this. You give your lives away in so many ways. Our church, we, it's clear that you, well, let's see, how do I say this? It's not going to come off good. I say, it's clear that you don't view Sunday morning as a beauty pageant, but that's going to come off the wrong way. <laughs> I mean that in a positive way, ladies, not in a negative way. It's, yeah, now I'm getting emails from wives and husbands. What'd you say about my wife? You get the point. There is a grace that reveals a contentment and a real desire to find your beauty and your purpose and your glory, if you will, not in the way you look, but in who you are in Christ Jesus. And I speak not only for the team, but for every husband and every man in this room from the youngest to the oldest, thank you. Thank you. So Paul begins with this. Men, women, humility must, humility must characterize the gathering. Men, humble yourselves, put your anger and corn aside, and pray with one another. Women, present yourselves humbly. Don't make church about how you look. Make it about who you're there to worship. Humility in both cases. But then he also says order. Humility matters when the church gathers. But then he says order matters when the church gathers. Notice what he says. He like takes a hard right here, okay? But, but this unit goes together. That's why I'm preaching both. Because he's, in both of these, he's talking about the gathering. Notice verse 11. He says, let a woman learn. So he continues to address the women. Let a woman learn 
quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Buckle up. This is the hard part of the text. And the words of Mark Twain, it ain't the parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts of the Bible that I do understand. It's not hard to understand what Paul is saying here. But it is hard to swallow for some. And why, it's why I saved this, it's one of the reasons why I saved this sermon for the last. So that we would have the last five weeks under our belt. Because the last five weeks are so critical. In fact, the last five weeks are going to show up in this text in just a moment. It's not hard to understand what Paul's saying, but it's hard for some to swallow. Now, maybe that's you. You know what Paul is saying. Isn't that funny? We go to Scripture. I know, I know what it says. I know what it means. I just don't want to give myself to that. Listen, if you're there, that's dangerous. You're in spiritual peril. It's God who is speaking the Scriptures to you. We can't say, God, good thought, not for me though. Let's move on. We can't do that. We can't do that. So if you're here and you're struggling with this, you know what? You're not alone. There are numerous arguments out there that try and use the scriptures to tamp down and to twist what Paul is saying here. I'm not going to get into those today. If you want to dig into the technicalities and the Greek vagaries of Paul's exhortation, I have some outstanding material for you. Just come see me. But Paul is pretty clear here. It's not that we can't understand him. It's that we don't like what he says. So what is he saying? Well, first, here's what Paul is not saying, okay? He is not saying women cannot pray or that they don't have the gift of prophecy in the church. 1 Corinthians 11.5 makes it very clear that they do. And again, 1 Corinthians 11.5 is context what we're doing right now. Paul is not saying that women can't teach other women. Titus 2 makes that clear. That is a good thing. Women teaching is a good thing. He is not saying that women can't speak up in community group or offer offer counsel to a man, Acts 18.26. There are other New Testament passages that make it clear that Paul is not prohibiting women from speaking in the church, period. That's not the point here. So don't take it that way. Don't take it that way. That's not the point. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying two things. One, women are not to teach the gathered church. Women are not to teach. Women are not to preach at the gathered church. And two, Women are not to exercise authority over the gathered church. Now, this this is important. Did you notice what I did there? Two, Two separate activities. Teaching and exercising authority, that is, they are not one in the same. They are two different and distinct and positive good activities. And the text actually bears this out. Notice in the beginning of verse 11 and notice at the end of verse 12. There are, Paul actually gives us two corresponding, two corresponding pairs of terms, right? In verse 11, he says learning, which then corresponds, see what it says, to teaching in verse 12. And then at the end of Verse 11, being in all submission, which corresponds with the end of verse 12, exercising authority. There's a correlation there. Two separate activities, two distinct activities. Now, 
Why am I pressing on that? I'm pressing on that because that's part of the, that is part of the false teaching on this matter. This is critical because some have tried to take, to make teaching and exercising authority as one activity. Well, there's two huge implications if we do that. The first one, because it implies one, that women can teach as long as they don't exercise, or as long as they're not exercising, as long as they're not assuming authority. Or it could mean that women can't teach because it's authoritative, but they can exercise authority in other ways in the gathered church. See that? If we, if we buy into the argument that there's one activity there, we're in trouble. That's not what Paul is saying. And the Greek language proves it out that they, those are two distinct activities. And so both those interpretations are wrong. So let me just say, ladies, neither, neither of those teaching, preaching, or exercising authority in the gathered church, neither of those is your role. You can't be a pastor. It doesn't matter what the church down the street says. It doesn't matter what your friends who go to a church with a female pastor tells you. Paul is prohibiting that. You have God-ordained roles. And let me tell you something about those. They are beautiful. They are necessary. They are irreplaceable. And they are vital to the gospel mission of the church. They just don't include teaching or exercising authority over the gathered church. This is why, if you're visiting with us, This is why we don't have female pastors. This is why we don't allow women to preach. This is why we won't have women teaching in mixed company. This is why most of our ministries are led by men. And let let me be clear. It's not for the lack of your ability or competence, ladies. I mean, we kind of joke around as a team sometimes. Yeah, she could run the church. (laughs) If God allowed it, that woman could run the church. She's got game. She has got gifting. That's not what it's about. It's not about your gifting. It's not about that you're not competent to do it. It's about it's not God's design for you. That's what it's about. And that's what Paul goes on to explain in verse 13. He now anchors the the what in the why. Notice what he says in verse 13. He says, for Adam, well, well, let's let's go back to verse 11 so we have the complete context. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. Now, we've seen this over the past few weeks. And if you're busy with us, and this is, you're just dropping in on this sermon, what you need to know is we have looked at Scripture to see what it says about roles and how critical the created order is in the New Testament and thus for us. And what we have seen over the past few weeks is that it all goes back to the created order in Genesis. Paul says women are to learn quietly and all in all submission and not to teach or exercise authority over men in the gathered church because that is God's design for them from the beginning. That's what Paul is saying here. Biblical roles in the church, complementarian roles for men and women in the church are not rooted in the culture. They aren't rooted in tradition. It doesn't matter what your favorite theologian believed. 
It's, they, aren't, they aren't rooted in fairness. They are rooted in the created order of Genesis 1 and 2. And did you see what Adam said in verse 13? Here's why, ladies, those, those things aren't your role. God created Adam first. And that matters. That is not incidental. That's not just, okay, well, that, you know, good for them. The Holy Spirit is not working on an ark, which is something that people are really pushing right now. Oh, sure, we see that in the garden, but we see a progression in Scripture, and it's carried out. We haven't become civilized in the 21st century. No, the created order is the created order, and it's our foundation today. And so God created Adam first. Adam was God's ordained representative of the human race, including Eve, who was created for him. Do you remember? Eve was created for him. Adam's leadership was expressed as he named the animals. But remember, there was no animal fit to be his helper. He needed someone who shared his personhood, who was created in the image of God, who could relate to God, who could, who could come alongside his strengths and compliment him in his strengths and his weaknesses. There was no animal that could do that. So God created Eve for that very purpose, to be his helpmate. And the end game is Adam leads, Eve follows. Adam lovingly and humbly leads. Eve thoughtfully and, and, and smartly, if that's a word, leads, follows. Equally created in the image of God, yes. Yet different, distinct, co-heirs with, 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 with distinct roles. Men, particularly, and I, and I would say particularly pastors, of course, lead, teach, and preach, and exercise authority as servant leaders. Women give themselves to good works and learning with a submissive heart. That's God's design. That's his design for his church. That's what Paul is saying here. And so our roles matter when we gather. They matter. It's not a sovereign grace thing. It's not, it's not you know, what works. It's not our philosophy. It was God's idea, established in creation and instructed by Paul, even instructed by Jesus. He went back to the created order at times. Now, Paul's not done yet. That means we're not done yet. So look at verse 14. He goes on. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. <laughs> it's getting more interesting, isn't it? That woman. Some have interpreted this as women being spiritually weaker. Don't go there. Some have interpreted this as women being less intelligent or more gullible. Not true. This would imply that women are inferior to men, and Scripture never says that. It doesn't. It doesn't say that. So why does Paul seemingly throw Eve under the bus here then? Well, I, th I think what Paul is doing is he's showing us what happens when we undermine God's design for our complementarian roles. I think that's the point of verse 14. Just, just think about this for a moment. Adam in the garden should have been out front leading Eve, right? God spoke to him. God gave him the instruction. He was there during the temptation. Genesis 3, 6 says, and Adam was there with her. So he was there. 
So why is the serpent engaging Eve? Why isn't Adam engaging the serpent? He didn't. Adam abdicated his leadership role and Eve was out front leading. Now, I don't know if she saw the serpent and heard him talk and thought, wow, and pushed Adam out of the way and rushed to the serpent. Who knows what happened? What we do know is that she is the one leading now. She is the one out front. Adam is behind her. He has abdicated his leadership. He has stepped out of his God-ordained role, and she has stepped out of her God-ordained role, and disaster struck. I love how Thomas Schreiner explains. He says, in approaching Eve then, the the serpent subverted the pattern of male leadership and interacted with the woman. Adam was present throughout and did not intervene. The Genesis temptation, therefore, stands as the prototype of what happens when male leadership is abrogated. Eve took the initiative in responding to the serpent, and Adam let her do so. And here we are. So Paul says, listen, Adam was formed first. That matters. He, he, he is the representative. He's out front. He leads. Eve was deceived. When their roles, when they got out of the roles, nothing good came of it. And of course, you know, right? You know the curse in Genesis 3 that for the woman... She would desire her husband. That's not a sexual desire. The point there is she would desire his role. She would want to lead instead of follow. For the man, he would not lead lovingly. His impulse would be to dominate over his wife. So so Paul's warning us here. He's warning the church in Ephesus. Guys, when you don't, when you gather and you don't gather God's way, it's not good. It's not good. Now, at the same time, Paul doesn't stop there. In a sense, he says, but you know what? It's always good when we've conformed to God's ways. Look at verse 15. Yet... She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There you go, ladies. Be quiet, have children, you'll get you'll be saved. Somebody might show up in my house for that one. (laughs) Of course not. Of course not. But this is an odd way for Paul. We have to admit, this is an odd way for Paul to conclude his teaching on roles in the gathered church. So a couple things. Obviously, he's not saying women are physically or spiritually saved in any way by having kids. The, we know the gospel alone saves. In God's perfect wisdom, some women, we can't explain it, they die giving birth. Others, they never have an opportunity to give birth. So what is Paul saying here? Again, there's a lot of different opinions. Given the context... Given the context, I think Paul uses childbearing, that imagery, to highlight and emphasize women walking in their unique God-given roles. Only women can experience giving birth to a child. Don't let this culture fool you. (laughs) No man can get pregnant and give birth to a child. 
That is a glorious God-ordained role that is transcultural. It's a, it is a God-ordained difference between men and women. And Paul, I think, uses this fundamental and unchangeable distinction to encourage women. And ladies, I, I hope you are encouraged that as you persevere in embracing and walking in your unique God-ordained roles, stated in verses 9 through 12, contrasted in the garden in verse 14, and now exemplified, if you will, in verse 15, by childbearing that action, then as you embrace your roles, as you give yourself to your roles, along with, what does he say? Love, faith, holiness, and self-control, your new life in Christ is evidenced. We know that one sense God has saved us. Another sense he is saving us. Another sense he will save us. I think Paul reminds the women using the most fundamental thing that God ordained only women to do. He has just said something that so many women would love to do. Teach and exercise authority in the gathered church. So he goes all the way back and he says, listen, I want to use the one most jarring and obvious way I made you different from men. Childbearing. And as you embrace, as you embrace your roles... It is evidence of your new life in Christ. It is evidence of your salvation. So what Paul does here is he ends this teaching on roles in the gathered church by showing the destruction of not walking in their God-ordained roles, i.e. Eve's deception and then immediately shows the, 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 the good of walking in God-given roles, i.e. perseverance and endurance in godliness and truth to the end when, our, when the, your salvation will be final and you will be with Jesus. And there's something else here to this childbearing imagery. I don't think it's the main purpose. Some would say it is. I think it's secondary. I, I think what we just talked about, God is, Paul is showing the good that comes from walking in God-ordained roles. But notice again in verse 15, that childbearing imagery. It should remind us of the one reason why all of this is possible. That we can, as men and women, embrace and walk in our God-ordained roles with joy and peace and, and in unity. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Je Mary gave birth to Jesus. Mary's not the point here in verse 15, I don't believe. But it's an arrow reminding us of the gospel. God incarnate. God became flesh. He was born a baby. He grew up to be a man who would not only live for our righteousness, but, but he would die for the forgiveness of our sins, and he would be raised from the dead to make it all sure as our son's substitute, fulfilling the promise in Genesis 3.15. Look at verse 5 with me. These are the preceding words. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Which is the testimony given at the proper time. That's the gospel. Before Paul transitions here. 
to verse 8 and begins to talk about the gathered roles, he reminds us. He reminds us of the one who came, the one who made a way for sinners like us to be saved. And now this imagery of childbearing doesn't just keep us on a horizontal plane. It draws us upward to see that this is all possible. Even in our imperfection, even in our sinfulness, even in a, in a hostile culture who's right here in our face, it's possible because there was a child who was born and his power not only extends to our, to, to our salvation, it extends to our sanctification. We're going to have the worship team come up. And it reminds us that this child, born of a virgin, he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And today, he is building his church. And as he does, he is redeeming our roles. He's redeeming our roles through the truth of his word and the power of his spirit. And here's what this means as we close. Men, because of Jesus, you can walk in your God-given role of leading the church in humble peacemaking and prayer. Be encouraged. Where you need to repent, repent. God will be merciful and gracious to you. Ladies, you are not second rate. You are not second best. You are not second place. Because of Jesus, you can walk in your God-given role of doing good works with a submitted spirit. Every day, yes, but especially when the church gathers. Be encouraged and repent where you need to. God will be merciful and gracious. Church, when we gather as God's people, we gather God's way for one reason, his glory. His glory. So would you stand with me and let's respond to this. Here's a role that man or woman were called to to sing with a loud voice the praises of God's glory and his unmatched wisdom to create us, to sustain us, to provide for us, and to one, way, one day come back for us.